you can't time the market, right? But you can spend time in the market. So I wouldn't invest any cash right now that you would need in the next short term. And I mean, I never recommend that, but you need to have at least a five-year time horizon before you're going to need that money. And if you do not have an emergency fund, that needs to be the priority. Hi guys, we're your hosts, Jillian and Kaylin, and this is Teach Me How to Adult, a podcast on all the things you never learned growing up, like how to buy a home, manage stress, crush your love life, land your dream job, and how to love yourself more, because we could all be a little kinder to ourselves. We're still figuring out how to get our shit together, so we're calling in the experts and the hustlers for some real talk and legit tips on how to live your best life. Adulting isn't easy, but we got you. Hi, friends. We are super excited about this week's episode because we're talking about something really, really relevant right now, how to recession-proof your finances and deal with all the economic instability that we're seeing. Because there is a lot going on right now. Interest rates are rising. Inflation is at a 40-year high. The stock market is down the shitter. There's been tech layoffs that we've seen on LinkedIn and honestly across most industries. And of course, talks of a looming recession. So there's just no better time than now to build up an emergency fund, invest wisely, and capitalize on passive income opportunities. Totally. And we've been getting our financial shit together these last few years. So yay, we're adulting. But there is still so much to learn and we are by no means the experts on this. So we brought in financial expert Nicole Victoria, aka No Budget Babe on Instagram and TikTok. And she honestly gave us so much friggin' fire advice that you are going to want to hear. So get ready. Nicole is a CEO, money coach, and financial literacy advocate who specializes in helping millennial and Gen Z women effortlessly manage their money and build bank accounts that never stop growing. She went from being $40,000 in debt with $0 in savings to being a self-made millionaire in her 30s which is hella impressive. She has since made it her mission to teach others how to take control of their finances so they can finally start winning with money. And she makes tackling your finances so approachable, relatable, and just totally doable. And guys, honestly, she's just so inspiring. Like, I can't say that enough. We just can't wait to put into practice some of the tips that she shared. Teach us how to recession-proof our finances, Nicole. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Nicole. We have so many questions. I think everyone's like a little bit panicked about the uh, unstable economy right now. And so this is going to be very helpful in putting my anxieties at ease at least. So let's dive in. Uh, We're wondering what you recommend people do with their investments when people start talking about a recession. Should they sell before the market dips further? Buy when things are low? What should people be doing when panic sets in? Yeah. And that is a really great question. And I definitely think that's something that is on everyone's mind right now. Um, First, I want to talk about why people actually lose money when the market crashes. So when the market crashes, people lose money because number one, either they've bought into something that won't come back up in value. Maybe it was something speculative, potentially crypto, you know, where it has no intrinsic value, like a company, like a stock in a company or real estate, which is like a physical asset. Um, Or number two is they sell because they get scared. Okay. So when the market crashes, if what you've invested in will recover, right, then the act of you selling is actually what causes you to lose money, not the market crashing. So you are the one actually locking in those losses. Um, 100% of the time, after a stock market crash, in history, the market as a whole has always recovered. So 
personally, this is why I don't invest in like single stocks because you are betting with your savings, right? That this one company is going to outperform the rest. So even the world's like top fund managers can't do this well, right? Pick the, the winning companies or even do it for an extended period of time. So when we think that we can, I think it's a little bit of a, like a confirmation bias, right? You see, you pick something and it does well for a little bit and you're like, okay, yeah, I know how to do this. I can do this. When the reality is we're just kind of betting. Studies show that stock pickers lose money and that's why I don't buy individual stocks, but instead I buy things like index funds and ETFs and asset allocation funds, which are like baskets of stocks. So like the ones that I invest in cover investments all over the entire world in different countries and in different industries and in different uh, like companies, right? And this allows me to diversify my risk. All of my eggs aren't in one basket and I'm not overexposed in one area. So I know people will say, well, Nicole, I'll just invest in like the S&P 500, which for those of you listening, if you're not sure, that is just basically a list of the top companies in America, right? The most reliable top companies in America. And people will invest in that and say it's a total portfolio. Personally, I don't believe so. And the reason being is I think that you're overexposed to the United States, right? Mm -hmm. All of your assets are U.S. companies. And we forget about those really great companies that are in Europe and in Asia, right? So I like to invest in the biggest and best across the world in different industries. So I'm not overexposed to like oil or the financial industry or something like that. Um, and that way, if I have this one investment that holds 13,000 companies, if one of them doesn't recover, it doesn't really impact me, right? Because right. the market as a whole has always recovered. And to your point where you were saying earlier too, you've only really lost money if you've sold when it's low. You haven't really lost anything if you're still holding on to it and the market's dropped. If you still as hold it. As long as it comes back up. So right. like, yeah. I will tell you, I guess a little bit of a funny story. The first investment I ever made was into blockbuster stocks. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Rest in peace. <laughs> so, so I was in college and um, this was before I really knew anything about investing. And my, my husband, my, my boyfriend at the time had this friend and he was like, I know that blockbuster is going to make this like huge comeback and have this like insider information oh, no. and they're going to oh, no. go to the moon. So my boyfriend and I were like, yeah, like, let's jump in. And we went to a financial advisor at the bank who did not tell us not to do this. Hmm. Um, and, and they opened an investing account for us and they took our student loan money <gasps> and they put it into Blockbuster. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, Blockbuster does not exist anymore. So suffice it to say, you have to make sure that what you're invested in is fundamentally viable, like it will come back. Mm -hmm. um, but the market as a whole has always recovered. So yes, the act of selling is what actually causes you to lose money or bad decisions like betting on Blockbuster. That's so funny. <laughs> and what would you wow. say to people who like are all about buying the dip or just like waiting to try to find out like how low the market will go to like invest more or is it just kind of always the best way to go is like dollar cost averaging just like putting a bit of money in consistently how do we like maximize on this yeah so you can't time the market right there could be a newer low tomorrow you don't know or tomorrow could be the day that it's sky rockets and goes up 20 percent and you know what i mean because the biggest rallies actually happen in a bear market, in a down market, because the investments have that much more room to be able to go back up to those previous levels. We don't know when that's going to happen, right? So those days can happen at any time. So my theory is, and you know, studies back this up, is it's better to just spend time in the market. However, 
right? If you have a huge chunk of cash right now and you see that markets are down, I personally had an opportunity fund. I was waiting for this to happen. I figured it was going to happen this year based on kind of what had happened last year. I'm dollar cost averaging into the dip. That's lowering my cost basis. So I know a lot of the indexes right now are down about 20 to 30%. My accounts are down about 10%. So I'm still down but it's Mm -hmm. not down quite as much because I'm lowering that cost basis by investing more um, at this time. And then also dollar cost averaging. So some days I might invest when it's a little bit up, when it's a little bit down, um, but overall I'm going to get that kind of median price. Right. And you mentioned a bear market for any listeners who don't know. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, bear market is basically when the the stock market has fallen from like down 20% from their all-time high. So the S&P 500, I believe, keeps bouncing in and out of a bear market right now. Um, so it's down about 20% from all-time highs. And like the NASDAQ is down, I believe, probably closer to 30% at this point. And I love, you mentioned you have an opportunity fund. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So, I mean, I had money kind of set aside. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with it, but I knew in this next year that I was going to either invest in real estate or invest more in the stock market. And I was just trying to figure out what investment was best for my goal. A piece of advice is I feel that people make the mistake of trying to choose the best investment before they fully understand the goal or the timeline for that goal, because not every investment Mm -hmm. is right for every goal. Not every investment is right for every person. So there's a lot of thought behind where I put my money, especially since I'm trying to retire early and reach financial independence. I'm going to need that money to last me longer, provide more cash flow over time, but also have the ability to increase the amount of money that I get to live off of because of inflation and things like that. So that's the first thing. And then, yes, going back to the opportunity fund, I had money set aside. I was like, I'm not entirely sure what my plan is or what my goal is, but I'm going to put this money aside. I think something's going to happen in in the stock market. Um, And then I knew I was moving and I knew that I was going to probably want to invest in more real estate. I was also doing some research on short-term rentals versus long-term rentals. I have a long-term rental, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to add a short-term rental to the mix too. So just taking my time to do the research, but I saw now that the greatest opportunity was in the stock market. So that's where I started to put my money. That's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, that's amazing. Speaking of funds, personal funds, (laughs) how do you recommend that people prepare themselves and start saving up for an emergency fund? Like, is there a golden rule of how much people should allocate from their salary every month or what would you recommend? That's a great question. Okay. So there's no rule of how much you should be allocating to your emergency fund each month. And actually I really dislike these kind of like arbitrary rules that are like, you know, save 10% for retirement or put, you know, don't spend any more than 30% of your income on housing because it pretends that everyone is the same person with the same values and the same goals starting from the same place, right? And we part, and it's time that we start looking at our finances as personal because it is personal, right? Personal finance. There's no one size fits all approach. And this is something specifically that we like help our students do, right? Learn how to build a plan that works for them specifically. I think you should look at your goals as a whole, your values and your total financial situation to help you determine how much you should be saving for your emergency fund. So that said, I know it's not sexy, but I promise 100% of the time it will save your ass over and over again. Um, if you have trouble saving like an emergency fund, you can trick your brain and call it something else. Maybe you call it like an oh shit fund. Maybe you call it my safety net fund, right? Whatever feels good to you. And basically we want to work towards first three to six months worth of bare bones expenses. 
and then six to 12 months. What I would say to do also is break that larger goal down into more bite-sized pieces to make it more manageable, make it feel more feasible. Um, it's the same thing if you're saving like a down payment on a house, you're like, oh my God, I have to save like $20,000. This is just like so overwhelming. But instead of that, be like, okay, well, instead I'm going to save $250 a paycheck or $500 a month or whatever it is that feels good to you. Instead of just being like, oh, I'm working towards this $20,000 goal. Because then when you look at it, you're going to be like, oh my God, all I did was put $250 towards my goal. I'm so far away versus yes, I hit my goal of saving $250 from this paycheck. And it just right. primes you psychologically a little bit differently to continue working towards those goals. That's such a good I tip. Love that. So much more manageable in like those small wins. Yes. And then you build momentum and you're like, I can do this. Whereas like when you have this daunting goal that seems unachievable, it's so easy to just give up and be like, this isn't feasible. Like people can't actually do this, but those little wins like 100%. get you there. Especially when it's when it's money that you're not using right away. I feel like it's really yes. hard for people to justify putting money towards there. But it's so important because you never know what's going to happen. No, for sure. And like something I see all the time too, even with our students is they'll be, you know, they go through and they're like, Nicole, yes, I saved my emergency fund. Like, let's freaking go. And then they'll come in the group, you know, like maybe a month later and they're like, I'm so upset I had to use my emergency fund and now I have to like start again. I have to start saving again. And it's like, but that's the point. Yeah. That's the point of it. That was your oh shit fund. You had an oh shit moment where something happened that you didn't expect. You lost your job, your car broke down, your cat got sick, whatever it is. And instead of going and then putting that money on credit and having this like vicious mm -hmm. cycle of paying it off and then falling back into debt again, now you had that fail safe that prevented you from being in a, you know, in a bad place financially. So it did its job. It did what it was supposed to do. So don't think of it as a bad thing. Be fucking proud of yourself and be happy that you had that available to be able to save you in that situation. Love that. You're right. And then once you have that emergency fund that you've been saving up, what's the best way to, to keep it? Like, should you be keeping it in cash or in a high interest savings account? Should you invest it in something safe? Like, where do you keep it? So always in cash in a high yield savings account, always, 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 because so right now the markets are down, right? The markets are unpredictable. They can be up, they can be down. We don't know what they're going to do from one day to the next. In the short term, they are very volatile, right? So the long term is where we see more safety in our investments, right? Vanguard did a study and I think they said, if you invest for five years, your chances of losing money are one in four or one in five, don't quote me on that. Um, and then if you invest for 20 years or more, it goes down to zero, right? Based on their data. So the longer you invest for, the higher your probability of making money or the lower the chance of you actually losing money. Now, because in the short term, we don't know what the markets are going to do. If you go and put your emergency fund or your oh shit fund into the market, and oh shit, you need it. <laughs> oh shit, you you're out of luck. Like, oh shit. <laughs> oh shit, it's also, gone. <laughs> the markets are down. You're yeah, exactly. You're out of luck. And you don't ever want to put yourself in a situation like that. When you put yourself in a situation where you have to sell your investments, mm -hmm. okay, that's when you put yourselves in situations where you could potentially lose money. So we always want to keep our emergency fund in cash in a high yield savings account so that it's battling inflation as much as possible. I know the rates right now are abysmal and inflation is very high. This is not a normal situation. So we want to be putting it in a high yield savings account to make at least as much as possible to preserve our wealth. The goal with your emergency fund is to have your wealth preserved 
and not really growing that wealth. When we have longer term goals like retirement or maybe we're saving for a house in 10 years or whatever it is, we can look for, you know, to achieve wealth accumulation or wealth growth in those instances. But when we're looking to have something like an emergency fund, we're really looking to just preserve that wealth as much as possible. And then this is kind of a hard question because I guess it depends on the person and the situation, but would now be a good time for people to pay off their debts just with everything that's going on, whether it's like mortgage, credit card, student loan, what do you think? Or invest it. Or invest, sorry, pay off their debt or invest. Okay, so normally I would say you want to put your money where it is going to work hardest for you. So I want you to imagine your money like little workers, right? Every dollar is a little worker. So if you make $50,000 a year, that means you have 50,000 little workers and you want to put your money, your little workers, where they're going to work the hardest for you. That said, so if you have like high interest credit card debt at 24.99%, you are not making 24% in the market. So pay off the credit card, put that extra money towards your credit card in that instance. However, normally, right, if you have debt like a mortgage, they have like 2% and you could potentially make seven to 10% in the stock market then you could be potentially missing out on like five to 8% of growth by paying that debt and not investing. That said, personal finance is personal. So you need to do what feels good to you once you've weighed the opportunity cost. But the markets are weird right now, right? So there is a few competing priorities that I would say. First one is just always get rid of your high interest debts as soon as possible. Um, we had somebody, one of our students the other day, she shared her debt repayment plan with us. And it's just actually fucking criminal, the rates that some people are charging. Like she had debt at 36%. Oh my like God. 36%. And I like, I, it blew my mind. I don't, I don't know if I had ever seen it that high before. I'm like, that's like a fucking shark low, man. Like that, I don't know how that's legal or how people can get away with that, but it's just heartbreaking. Wow. Pay those off. Wow. Do not, if you have the ability to not use those, right? Do not use those guys. Pay that off, especially if it's for like consumer spending or something. Do not do that to yourself. You know, second, with a recession looming, like we talked about, it is important to beef up your emergency fund and get some extra cash stashed away just in case. You may feel like you have safety at your job right now, but you don't know what's going to happen, right? If their mm -hmm. sales numbers start to fall, they don't care. They're going to look mm -hmm. at other ways to maintain those profit margins. So they're going to cut expenses and they're going to cut employees, right? While the market is down, it could stay down for a day, a month, six months, a year, 10 years. Like we don't know. No one knows, right? So while I do believe that this is an incredible buying opportunity, you can't time the market, right? But you can spend time in the market. So I wouldn't invest any cash right now that you would need in the next short term. And I mean, I never recommend that, but you need to have at least a five-year time horizon before you're going to need that money. And if you do not have an emergency fund, that needs to be the priority. Because again, if you put mm -hmm. yourself in a situation where you have to sell investments because you need the cash, that's when you're going to put yourself in a situation where you can lose money. A lot of us are going to be in situations that are maybe not ideal for what's going on right now. So it's not about feeling like shame or blame or stress or any of that kind of stuff. It's just about coming back and saying, okay, this sucks, but 
how can I, right? How can I achieve my goal? How can I overcome this, right? Are there other things that you can do? Maybe you can work with your partner. If you have a partner to increase their income, maybe they can negotiate a raise at work. Maybe you guys can start mm -hmm. negotiating your bills. Maybe you can rent out your basement and start bringing in some extra income, right? There are always things that we can do. And so if you're feeling stressed right now, I know the immediate reaction is to be like, oh fuck, this is so scary. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah. Start asking, how can I, when you're faced with a challenge and then you'll start to see a lot of opportunities come up. Yeah. And drilling deeper totally. on that, like you talk a lot about uh, creating passive income on your, on your social and everything that you do, which is great. So obviously one surefire way to, to set yourself up for success when there's economic instability is to increase your revenue streams. A lot of people don't know how to go about doing that. Like if you're coming from a a world where you've only ever worked like a day job or like a nine till five it's like well how can i do more how can i generate passive income so what's what are a few building blocks that people can learn about that yeah that's a great question too so i mean and i was definitely of that mindset i don't know maybe like 10 years ago or something when i was working my corporate job the first thing that i thought when i wanted to make more money was i need to get another job right and i saw multiple people that i worked with you know in the corporate office going and getting a second job getting a job on the weekends getting a job after work um, so that they were able to increase their income and while yes this can help in the short term number one it's going to potentially increase the the tax bracket that you're in so maybe it pushes you into a higher tax bracket and maybe that tax bracket is i don't know 40% or whatever it is so each one of those dollars that you're making after right is maybe taxed at 40% you have to sit back and think okay well, does that actually make sense for me? Because now I'm trading so much more of my life to get this money when I think I'm making this hourly wage, when actually it's basically half of that because I'm paying whatever to taxes. So it's True. important to think about that too. That's why passive income really is queen. However, to make passive income, usually you need to set up active income first right? So active income is the top of the income funnel. We work, we make money, we save it. And then we pull that path active income down into passive income by investing in like income producing assets, like stocks and rental real estate. Um, I mean, you can set up passive income through like a side hustle, but again, it's going to take your active energy to mm -hmm. set that up first. So active always needs to come before passive. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually something that we teach our students how to do. We have a four month program called Income Multiplier where we teach students how to increase their active income and then really pull that down into different income streams. So like real estate, mortgage investment corporations, you know, stock market investing, all of that kind of stuff um, to build up those other passive income streams. That said, kind of what we were talking about before, the easiest way to increase your income right now without working more or trading more hours of your life is really to learn how to negotiate, right? So this is also something that we teach, negotiate your salary so that you are making more money for every hour of your life that you are trading, right? Maximize your, your hourly wage. And then the next thing is, you know, negotiating your bills, negotiating, if you have debt, negotiating that interest rate, um, if you can consolidate that debt and put it onto like a no fee, like balance transfer or something like that, where you're paying 0% interest, you can lower your monthly payments drastically that way and get that debt paid off faster with less interest paid. Um, you can do other things like, like I said, you know, like refinancing your debt, you can negotiate your bills. There are so many creative ways that you can go about changing kind of like what's happening in your day to day. You can, um, 
like I know they have, I can't remember what the websites are called, but they have like websites where you can go on and you can like split your Netflix with a, fr a friend or a family member, mm -hmm. or you can split your Amazon Prime or whatever it is. So mm -hmm. these things that you're paying for, let's get creative about the way that we're paying for them. And maybe there's another way to get that same benefit, but actually pay less for it. Um, even like I was saying before too, like the, the basement apartment, do you have a room that you can rent out? Do you have a basement apartment that you can rent out? Is there another way for you to make another stream of income without with what you have right now, without you actually having to work more for it? Right. That's so smart Those about sharing good accounts. Ideas. Like I pay for so many subscriptions, like whether it's like a fitness subscription or like a like Netflix, all those things. And if, if everyone just kind of shared those expenses, if you're allowed like two people on a profile instead of just everyone. Yeah, that's so smart. Exactly. So you mentioned you help your students negotiate things like the, either their salary or bringing expenses or bills down. So do you have any tips that you could share with our listeners on how they can do that and ne negotiate those kind of bigger expenses? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so the first thing is, most people are scared to negotiate. They mm -hmm. think they have this like idea that a negotiation is an argument and one person wins and one person loses. And it's like this really stressful thing. And we have so many students come into our program. They're like, I don't want to do this. So we have to understand that negotiation is not an argument. It's simply two parties trying to come to a mutually beneficial agreement. Two people that basically want the same thing. Like think of this and you know, as a real estate agent for six years, let's think about this in terms of like buying and selling houses. The seller wants to sell the house. The buyer wants to buy the house. We want the same thing. We just need to find the parameters for each party to come to a yes, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start negotiating and someone says no, it doesn't mean no, no doesn't mean no in this context. It means we haven't found the parameters to come to a yes yet. So it's about asking those creative questions. Okay, no, that didn't work for you. Tell me more about what would. What could we change in this current situation to help you get to a yes? What could I provide to you to help you get to a yes? And also remembering when we're negotiating with like our cell phone company, our internet company, whatever, it costs them more money to you know, attain a new customer to attract a new customer than it does to just retain an old one. True. It's mm -hmm. in their best interest to keep you, right? And things like even negotiating your rent, okay? As a landlord, I would rather have somebody in there who I know is a good tenant versus somebody who's just, you know, arbitrarily going to pay me more money. So if you can showcase this, right? This is about pleading your case. It's not about why you want cheaper rent. This is a mistake that everybody makes. They're like, well, I'd like to make more money because I have a lot of bills. And it's like, they don't care. They don't care. You have to approach yeah. them with what they care about, right? If you can showcase that, hey, this is how I'm going to make your life better. This is how I'm going to make your life easier. In turn, I would like to be compensated for that. Yeah, that's great advice. Love that. Show your value. That's really solid. And going off of yeah. the, the real estate example, you obviously have a, a history in real estate. So we'd love to pick your brain on any advice that you have for people looking yeah. to buy a home right now. Given the economic instability, given the rate hikes in um, mortgages and interest rates right now, um, and then even, you know, home costs dropping across Canada, there's a lot of things going on. So what would your advice be? Obviously, it's hard to time the market, but are there risks or benefits to buying right now? 
you know, I was working at a time when really the real estate market really started picking up in some areas they were seeing, you know, 30% year over year increases in prices. And I heard this from clients a lot. And actually the firm that I worked for, we did a lot of research into the housing market, into what was causing the housing market increases. Um, that research was actually quoted in like the Bank of Canada's, um, you know, report on the housing market and stuff. So I know I know from a very detailed perspective, kind of like the economics and the data behind what was going on, at least at that point. Um, what I think was happening over the last like two years was a lot of irrational exuberance, a lot of people just becoming irrationally optimistic about the housing market with this belief that it will always keep going up in the future. And so we're in a situation right now where there were probably a lot of people who put themselves in a situation where they had to sell. Remember what we talked about from the beginning of the episode, when you put yourself in a situation where you have to sell, that's when you can lose money. So they probably put themselves in that situation. The housing mm -hmm. market has definitely changed in the short term. Will it mirror 2017? And will the prices just go back up? Will people become confident again once they see that everything is okay? Or will we go into a recession? People will lose their jobs. And then because people lose their jobs, then they can't afford their houses, then more houses flood the market. And then we have increased supply and decreased demand because people can't buy because mortgage rates are so high and they lost their jobs. That's a recipe for yeah. disaster. Could that happen? Yes. Um, could it happen more like 2017 where maybe we don't go into a recession? Maybe people are fine with the higher mortgage rates. Like, I don't know. I'm not an economist and economists can't accurately predict what's going to yeah. happen either. So there's a few things that could happen. Wanted to give some context to what happened before, just so people could kind of understand where like the risks and the benefits mm -hmm. might be. Yeah. Because after that, you know, 2018, uh, 2017 was when the prices fell and 2018, they started to come back up. 2019, they were up a lot. And then by 2020, you know, that's when things started to go fucking crazy because of COVID. So again, we can't really predict what's going to happen in the market. Similar how to how I recommend investing in stocks is how I recommend buying a house. Even though it's like an emotional thing, I still recommend seeing it as a financial investment because it's likely the largest financial purchase you're ever going to make in your life. So ask yourself three questions. Can you hold the property for at least five years? Okay. Can you hold the property for at least five years? Do you see any potential changes coming to your income? If you do, it doesn't mean you can't buy, but it doesn't mean that you should be changing maybe your budget for buying, or maybe you should have a basement apartment or whatever, whatever, okay? And do you have at least the down payment, closing costs, plus a cushion saved up? Do you have a fully funded emergency fund? Never spend your last dollar buying a house. Shit always happens. And you need to be looking at your house as an investment, okay? and not just getting emotional. And you know, when I was a real estate agent, I would have um, clients tell me all the time, Nicole, you're so negative. Like we go into a house and I'd be like, I love the kitchen. And I'm like, that's great. There's knob and tube wiring, there's lead piping. My goal is to show you all the mm -hmm. red flags and tell you all of the places where I see this becoming a potential disaster for you. And then you taking all of that information. And then from there, deciding if you wanna move forward. So I guess this is a pro tip too. That's so smart. And I, I've never had a real estate agent who's actually just like shone a light on all the issues. Like I've always had to find out the issues in the places based on digging. And so, Which is yeah. yeah. And, and to your point, what though, is their like, value then? Anyone can open a door. they just want to get it done. You know, they like so many real estate agents I've worked right. with just want to like make the sale, move on. But it, it, once you have all the information, you can make a decision about how much risk you can shoulder. And like, that's what happened in the place that I got. I've, I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but 
I fell in love emotionally with with this loft and I was like this is the one that I want but there were building deficiencies and there was like a lawsuit against the developers and so there was a lot of risk you needed a minimum I know the exact building that you're <laughs> yes and so but like they didn't really the real estate agent didn't give me that much information Did your not tell you? they told me but they didn't tell me what okay. that meant right and I was like young I was I was in my 20s right. yeah, exactly. being like I don't know what this means and so I just I I was so I just wanted it I just really really wanted it and it meant a lot of people yeah. were priced out of buying it because you needed a certain amount of down payment because your mortgage wouldn't be insured and MHC wouldn't insure it yeah exactly and so Ultimately, I did a lot of fact finding. I got the building envelope, figured out what the deficiencies were, got some help with that, found out like, what is the worst case scenario? That is, we get slapped with like a special assessment fee. Here's exactly how much Mm -hmm. that would cost me based on like the size of my unit. And that was a price that if the worst case scenario happened in the building, I could afford that price, especially given it was lower than a lot of other comparable units because the building had issues. And so once I had all the information, Mm. all that anxiety, I was like, this is okay. I can take this risk because I understand it. But before that, I was so stressed because I was like, I don't know what this means. Is the roof going to cave in? Like, But really what it meant is exactly. everything's being fixed. It just means if the lawsuit isn't one or you know whatever, then you might have to pay a special assessment fee. But not having that information, you're, you're operating blind and you might find out there's issues and you can take them on and then it's great. But if you can't take them on, you can make a better choice. No, exactly. And that's why it's so scary for people who were in that real estate market who were going in with no conditions and they weren't reviewing status certificates yeah. and they weren't doing home inspections and they weren't getting, you know, financing approval because you think, oh, okay, well, I can afford the mortgage on this. It's okay. Not realizing, especially when you're buying a condo, there are many buildings that, you know, you have to have a 20% down payment on because CMHC will not provide you mortgage insurance on that building. I had a situation with a client where they really liked this, one of the condos in Toronto, and um, it was priced much lower than everything else around it. And I'm like, let me, I got to do some digging because it's not like, you know, nothing in life is free. And I need to understand why this is cheaper than everything else. And it turned out that that building actually was, you know, full of high tech plumbing. um, And there was like a special assessment and all the things. However, I did some more digging and found out, well, the owner already paid the special assessment and the Kitech plumbing was almost already removed. And it was going to be like, you know, a month after closing. So the, that it was actually completed. So the risks were minimal. So they were able to actually get into a two bedroom condo, whereas they might've only been able to afford a one bedroom in that same area. And the prices shot up like astronomically after that came off the status certificate because the Kitech plumbing was removed and therefore there was no more issue. But so suffice to say, there's always something happening. Like I say 90% of the time, there's always something happening behind the curtain and it's up to your real estate agent to provide you that information so you can make an educated and informed decision. Doesn't mean you can't move forward in those instances. Doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It just means that you need to understand what your potential risk is. So you understand how to mitigate that risk as well. So our last question is one that we always like to ask our guests. And that's what's one thing that you wish you had been taught in school? I wish that I had been taught investing in school and that it's not, uh, you know, for the rich, it's how you get rich. It's also not just how you get rich, but it's the only thing that you can really do to provide real financial safety and security in the future. And that if you don't invest, you just don't get to retire. Nobody talks about that. We say retirement is an age when the reality is retirement is a number in the bank. So if you hit that number tomorrow, you don't have to work. 
But if you don't hit that number at 65, it doesn't mean that you turn 65 and you magically get to stop working. And lastly, it would have been really fucking nice to know that money that you save and invest in your 20s is worth twice as much as your 30s due to compound interest. So the earlier you get started, the less you have to put in and the more wealth you can build with less of your own input. I'm also upset about that one. <laughs> oh boy. Right? I'm like, you can't get the time back. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, those are really good ones. This has been so amazing. We've learned so much from you. You're like just you have such amazing knowledge. And please share with everybody how they can follow you, how they can get all of your great content on social and on your site pimp yourself out. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So we have um, two programs where you can actually work with me personally. Um, one is our three month group coaching program. It takes you through my signature process, which is the making money moves method. Um, it's my five step process that I use to go from $40,000 in debt to becoming a millionaire at 30 years old. And the four month program is kind of like one level up from there for people who want to learn how to create multiple streams of income. It's called income multiplier. We teach you how to build a side hustle increase your salary, and then how to pull all of that money down into um, passive income through investing in like real estate and stocks and all the things. But if you want to get started for free, we have three free courses and a free ebook on our website under freebies that will teach you more about money, saving, paying off debt, and all the things. So highly recommend those as well. And you can find me on social media, TikTok, Instagram, at No Budget Babe. And we have a free Facebook group with over 60,000 badass women who are getting their financial shit together called Master Your Money and Build a Bank Account That Never Stops Growing. Amazing. Love it. We're going to link all of that <laughs> yeah. in our show notes. Yeah, we'll make sure it. we link that all. We're huge fans. Thank you so, so much, Nicole. There you have it, friends. We hope this chat with Nicole inspires you to start or continue building that emergency fund and investing your money so that you're set up for success no matter what this crazy economy throws at you. We'll leave you with a quote from New York Times bestselling author, podcast host, and financial expert Susie Orman. A big part of financial freedom is having your heart and mind free from worry about the what-ifs of life. That's what she said. So there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe and leave a comment or a rating. And we'd love it if you would share this with your friends by screenshotting the episode and sharing it on social by tagging at Teach Me How to Adult Podcast and DM us with any topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show. See you next time. Bye. Bye.